One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to another episode of Say Why to Drugs. This intro is going to be very short because I have sleeping baby on me so that's also why I'm speaking quite quietly but this is gonna be the last say why to drugs for a while um also because of the said sleeping baby but it's a really good one and I'm really pleased I'm finally able to put it out this was recorded just before lockdown started at vault festival in London part of the stream of vault festival that was put on by the amazing child.org now I really recommend you go and find them on twitter because during lockdown certainly at the beginning they were doing amazing charity quizzes about all sorts of things and I I don't know because I haven't spoken to them but I bet you that they're doing a Christmas quiz so take part in it it'll definitely be brilliant if they are and if not just go and check out the amazing work that they do and support them anyway so yes this episode was recorded at Vault Festival in London in association with child.org and it's a really fantastic interview with Alex Aldridge. Alex is a PhD student and she is doing some really, really interesting work looking at the relationship between drug use and sexual practices or sexual behaviours or sex in general. And we talk about her PhD, we talk about why she's interested in the topic, what we mean when we talk about drugs and sex, um, what chemsex is, but much more than just what chemsex is as well. And I'm really, really excited to put this episode out because I think it's really interesting and hopefully it will make you think about chemsex and sex and drugs in a different way to the way that maybe you do at the moment. It's certainly, um, speaking to Alex, really opened my eyes about all the kind of different ways that people use drugs in their sexual relationships and sort of why as well. So that's a very rambly intro. But I really hope you enjoy this last for a while, but not last ever, I'm sure, episode of Say Why to Drugs. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Vault Festival in association with Child.org, live podcast recording of Say Why to Drugs. Thank you very much. My name is Dr. Susie Gage. Um, if you don't know me or the podcast, then I'm really impressed that you're here. But <laughs> So uh, I am a researcher at the University of Liverpool. I do research looking at the links between recreational drug use and mental health. And I've been doing research looking at recreational drugs for about 10 
maybe a while. Feels like, feels like longer. Um, <laughs> but um, one of the things that I, I noticed when I first started working in this area was how, how much kind of myths and misinformation there are around drugs, drug use, people who use drugs, um, and all sorts of things, anything to do with drugs, really. So I started the Say Why to Drugs podcast to try and create a resource that was providing information about the evidence, what we know about drugs, without any of the hyperbole, spin, or judgment that you quite often get in recreational drug information. So um, that is me and the podcast, but I am not here to talk to you. I am here to talk to my special guest, uh, who is here to talk to you. Uh, you guys are definitely, we want you here. So I, I wrote a little introduction, or rather... I stole a little introduction that you wrote, but you, uh, I think I might get you to introduce yourself, if that is all right. Yeah, that's fine. Um, my name's Alex Aldridge. I'm a PhD researcher at Royal Holloway, University of London, and I'm researching sex on drugs. So um, kind of just all the way the two combine, um, mostly focusing on like illegal recreational drugs, but um, I'm also interested in like alcohol and um, tobacco and stuff like that as well so specifically I'm kind of going into uh, like nightclubs and parties and stuff like that where people tend to have sex on drugs and kind of researching there. So I'm really excited to have Alex on the podcast and particularly today as it's International Women's Day Eve which should be a celebration in its own right in my opinion and there's already a Say Why to Drugs podcast episode about issues around women and drugs. I was lucky enough to speak to um, the author and journalist Jenny Valentish, who's written a really great book called Woman of Substances, which I recommend you read. And in that podcast, we talk about some of the issues that are sort of surround women in particular when they use drugs. But this conversation is going to be, it might well touch on some of those issues because I think they're probably going to be relevant, but it's sort of really exploring um, drugs and sex. The thing that I find quite interesting about this conversation is that it's often if we think about drugs and sex we might think of very particular groups of people or particular substances but probably if we're all honest with ourselves our early sexual experiences probably involved one drug in particular and that's alcohol do you think that's is that accurate do you think yeah I think I think it's definitely accurate. I was doing a, um, a kind of talk with uni students the other day and um, some of them were talking about how their, some of their friends had like never had sex that didn't, involved al- that didn't involve alcohol. So I think, yeah, you're really right to say that and it's very true. But that's very different from what we think about in terms of research looking at sex and drugs tends to focus on things like chemsex. Mm. So can you tell us a little bit about what chemsex is? Yes. Chemsex generally refers to um, men who have sex with other men. So often people refer to gay and bisexual men, but obviously there are other men who have sex with men as well who maybe don't identify as that, Um, using like three specific drugs um, with sex. And those drugs are um, GHB or GBL, often known as G, crystal meth, and um, methadrone, which is also known as MCAT or various other things if you read the 
Daily Mail, <laughs> Meow, or other things as well, yeah. So um, there can be other drugs used in those contexts as well, like poppers and stuff are, you know, quite common. But those are the three drugs that people tend to focus on. Um, another thing about chemsex is uh, it's generally uh, group sex rather than just between two people, though obviously it can between, be between two people. And um, people often talk about it lasting, you know, a few days at a time, because obviously you're in, including stimulant drugs in that, so it kind of gives you the capacity to have sex than you would uh, have sex for longer than you normally would be able to. Another thing as well is it's often those kind of sex parties are often organised via dating apps like Grindr or, you know, other ones like that as well. Uh, yeah, so that's what chemsex normally refers to when... So the three say. drugs that you mentioned, are they all... Do they, are they all quite similar in terms of the effects that they have? They're, they're all different, actually. So... Um, Crystal meth being like a stimulant, keeping you going for a long amount of time. Um, methadrone being... It's a synthetic caffeinone, isn't yeah. it? So sort of stimulant, but not but yeah. a bit different. And people describe it as being similar in some respects to MDMA, like kind of, you know, that kind of loved up feeling, maybe a little bit, though maybe to a lesser extent. So that's kind of present for it too. Um, and then GHB or GBL, I'll just maybe call it G just for that's kind of similar to alcohol in that in the way it makes you feel to some extent um so that's more of like a depressant one so the opposite to the other ones not a stimulant its effects are often mirror mdma as well maybe that kind of loved up feeling you get like losing your inhibitions kind of being able to talk about things you might not usually be able to talk to that talk about that's what g is usually associated with yeah, and some, some people say it's a little bit like alcohol in some ways mm -hmm. as well, in that small doses can st seem to have a kind of stimulant -y effect and then bigger doses can mm -hmm. be quite um, depressant effect in yeah. terms of depressing your breathing and that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and, and talking about dosing with G is obviously really important because um, it's a drug where you, you do need to be really careful about how much you're taking. Like, the difference between um, a dose and an overdose is, is really minimal, like, point. 2.3 of a milliliter. So. It's really, really, really small. People use sort of syringes to... Yeah. You don't inject it, but you use a syringe to take the dose because it's such a small amount. Yeah. Why do you think this, this particular group of people and this particular, these particular substances, why do you think they're the most researched in terms of thinking about the link between sex and drugs? I think first and foremost, because it has a name, chemsex, because it's called something. So, you know, when you're trying to research something and trying to find people to find participants to do your research with, it really helps that you can say, you know, do you do chemsex? Yes. Do you want to be involved in my research? Um, sex on drugs outside of chemsex doesn't really have an agreed upon name that everyone who, who engages in it uses. So, um, you know, the fact that it has a name, it has a definition, we know what it is, that makes researching it kind of more possible than than if that wasn't the case. Secondly, because um, chemsex is, you know, research has found is drug use is linked to riskier sexual practices. So that might be uh, not wearing a condom or, you know, having sex with multiple partners in one night, that kind of thing. So because of that, chemsex has links with the transmission of uh, sexually transmitted infections and also given that men who have sex with men have a relatively 
like in comparison to other groups of people, um, higher levels of HIV as well, and there's the potential for transmission of HIV, research tends to really focus on that, you know, justifying the fact that we're doing research with this population because, you know, there's the risk of it's HIV a, it's transmission. It's a public health issue. Yeah, it's a public health problem. We need to intervene, that kind of thing. But does that actually reflect who is using drugs with sex or using drugs when they have sex? Are we capturing all of the all of the information by just focusing on this group? Yeah, I would I would say no, definitely not. And um, you know, we kind of know that, like, firstly, anecdotally, you know, you talk to people. Most people have had, you know, the vast majority of people have at least combined alcohol with sex, and if not, other drugs as well. Uh, we also know from like some surveys as well that have been done. For example, the Global Drug Survey back in like 2013, um, they asked people everyone who answered the survey, so not just men who have sex with men, what drugs they'd use with sex. And, um, like, a lot of people, a lot of people did, like, the majority of people did, and, um, yeah, not just, not just gay and bisexual men. And also the kind of drugs that they were using with sex tended to reflect just the drugs people use in general, so, which makes sense, you know, people take drugs and sometimes they have sex when they've taken those drugs. So, yeah, it's definitely not capturing the full story of sex on drugs. And what, at the moment, or if you think sort of before you started working in this field or when you came to kind of look at the evidence that exists at the moment, is there much research about women at the moment? And if, if so, what does that look like? Yeah, at the moment, there's, there's little research about how women use sex with drugs. Um, but there is quite a big area of research that... that inevitably is about women and sex and drugs, and that's about um, drug-facilitated sexual assault. Women who have been sexually assaulted while under the influence of alcohol and or other drugs. There's kind of a lot of literature on that, looking at the links between the two. There's a lot of literature on that, particularly in the context of, like, universities and, like, college campuses in America and stuff like that. So, so there's a lot of work there, but um, there's very little on like women's intentional use of drugs with sex and positive and pleasurable experiences and that kind of thing. So, so we only really know about the negatives. And that, that kind of fits in with the narrative of women and drugs more generally, doesn't it? That there's sort of seen two, two types of women who use drugs. It's women who are pressured into using drugs by a partner or drugs are used in, as a control mechanism or women who are sort of opting out of assigned gender roles by using drugs. Yeah. And I think it also links to this um, more negative judgment connected to women who use drugs over men who use drugs. So you'll find a lot of the time when, when alcohol or another drug was implicated in a sexual assault that women are almost held to blame for having been intoxicated at the time of their assault. Like, oh, you shouldn't have drank so much. You shouldn't have got yourself so vulnerable. You shouldn't have put yourself into that situation. So, you know, where's the... Like, why, why is it not OK for women to get into that situation? Why, why can't women use drugs in, you know, ways that other people are using it? Because, you know, on the flip side of that, when you're thinking about people, perpetrators of sexual assault, often drunkenness is kind of used as an excuse almost, like, well, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, I was drunk, that kind of thing. And that isn't judged in the same way as it is for people or women who are victims of sexual assault. So before we start to talk, I want to talk to you a little bit more about your research, mm -hmm. um, but what made you want to start working in this area? 
So uh, I was working as a research assistant at um, a university and the project was on um, NPS drugs, so novel psychoactive substances, particularly looking at spice and uh, other ones as well. So that's where... Um, so spice is a synthetic cannabinoid, that's mm -hmm. right, and it's a drug that's being particularly used in amongst homeless and prison populations. Yeah, yeah. So the project was looking at the use of MPS among vulnerable groups. One of them, like you said, was uh, people who are homeless, people who are just coming out of prison. Um, but another group was men engaging in chemsex. Um, because methadone, one of the drugs that I mentioned, is a chemsex drug, um, they were included in the group as well. And. Um, yeah, I came across the definition of chemsex that we already talked about and found it really interesting, but also was just a little confused as to why research seemed to solely focus on that group. And it was only about men. And, you know, like most of my friends have had sex on drugs. Like it, it just seemed odd that there wasn't anything about it outside of that group. So that's kind of how I got to thinking about it and then ended up where I'm at. Yeah, so do you want to tell us then about your PhD? What are you, what are you looking at? Sure. Um, I'm looking at how um, the context in which people are taking drugs and having sex kind of affect, uh, impacts how that sex plays out. So um, that includes things to do with like sexual consent, you know, how are drugs like affecting people's ability to give consent? Is it impairing it? Is it enhancing it? You know, what's going on there? Um, you know, how do the how do the environments infect, affect what kind of sex is, is happening? So, you know, if you're in a, a club that's, you know, a sex club and maybe there's more kink stuff going on, you know, like how is the environment affecting the kind of sex that's happening there? So, yeah, what I'm doing is I'm going into those kinds of clubs and similar parties and stuff like that and like talking to people who are there and kind of observing what's happening and like taking note of you know the the I don't want to say this because it sounds stupid but like the vibe of the party and how it's like affecting what's going on so um yeah and I'm, I'm also going to be doing like some interviews with people who combine sex and drugs with a focus on like women and other like gender minority people as well because you know those are the people we're not hearing from um, and I'm getting them to like keep diaries so after they've had a sex and drug experience I'll get them to write about it reflect on it um, because I think as well like although of course sex and drugs happens in parties definitely like it also happens in people's own homes like between their partners in private that kind of thing so I want, I want to know I want to know everything about sex and drugs wherever, wherever it happens so yeah just trying to get a big picture so this is the kind of data nerd in me that wants mm. to ask this question so please um indulge me everybody um but so how do you go about like what do you do with that data when you collect really rich kind of like is it, is it one on one discussions or yeah. that kind of things like what do you then do with that data well it's a big question it's, a, it's a good it's a good question um so obviously if it's like interview data you you um like transcribe it and and you read over it endlessly and um, then you kind of just see what 
um, if, you're do, if you're doing kind of the common thing that you do with qualitative data, like interview data, you do something called thematic analysis, but that's absolutely not the only thing that you can do and maybe not what I will do, but it is what I have done in the past, so probably what I'm most qualified to talk about. So you just kind of spot like emerging patterns or themes that kind of go across your data set and then you kind of start writing down these themes, like getting things that fit in, not fitting in and then changing it all and doing doing all that. So it's, so it's quite like a big iterative process and it also kind of feeds into your ongoing data collection. So if you've, you know, started interviewing people and you've seen that uh, kind of enhancing physical sensations is like a theme that's come up for you, you might then go on and ask the people that you're continuing to talk to if they've had experience of, of, of that. In terms of like data from observations and like diary entries, I think there's like ver there's various ways that you can that you can um, analyze stuff like that, and uh, I think as well with diaries, people shouldn't necessarily just be restricted to writing. They can draw, they can you know do whatever it, they want to convey how how they felt about sex on a certain drug. So I guess kind of also creative analysis methods would be good as well. But I'm kind of looking those up. <laughs> And how do you how do you recruit people into your study? Are, you, are there particular groups of people that you're interested in speaking to, or are you trying to get a broad picture? Well, I'm I'm definitely trying to recruit people who don't engage in what's like traditionally known as chemsex. Although there will inevitably will be people who do do chemsex, but also have other types of sex and drugs that I will recruit. But yeah, so so kind of you know, talking about women and sex and drugs and trying to recruit women because we just don't hear from women enough when it comes to sex and drugs. Um, yeah, also people of other gender minorities and stuff like that. Um, but when you're doing ethnographic work and like going into clubs and parties and stuff like that, it's very common to utilize your own network because getting access can be hard. So, you know, if you already kind of know these groups of people, it's that really helps. So um, recruiting kind of starts from people you know. You kind of pick people you know that that do it and would be suitable. And then an another common thing is what's called snowball sampling and just then asking people that you know, like, oh, do you know anyone else who would be good for the study? So it's so it's kind of word of mouth. So I'm not I'm not using things like posters or trying to get people involved that way or sending out emails. I'm just kind of asking people and they make links to people as well. Because I imagine, and this is from my experience of conducting research, just asking people about illicit drug use, that it's really difficult mm. <laughs> to um, have honest and frank and open conversations about these kind of topics with people. Certainly around illicit substance use, whenever I submit papers, the criticism I often get back is, oh, well, this is self-report, how do you know that this is what these people are actually doing, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So I imagine if you throw sex into the mix as well, then mm -hmm. that becomes even more uh, um, challenging. So how are you finding um, having these conversations? Is, mm -hmm. it, is it something that it's a struggle to elicit the information that you want or...? Yeah. I mean, what I would say is it's it's never the same, like with with a different person, like every single person I interview um, is it's a completely different dynamic. And that affects how open they are and how comfortable I feel as well, like because because it can be awkward as well, asking the questions, like feeling like, oh, I don't want to 
put you on the spot, but also I really need this information out of you. And, you know, it's about their sex life. So, so I don't want to be like disrespectful, but at the same time, I want to know as much as I can. So, I mean, this is where kind of recruiting from your own social network is good because often you will be a similar kind of person to the person that you're interviewing just because you, you know, hang out in the same groups of people. So I think when you're a similar age to someone, you know, you dress in a similar kind of way, people often will be more open with you because of that, because they doubt that you're going to judge them for what, you, for what they're going to say. That really helps. But, yeah, when you're interviewing people who maybe are a little bit different to you, and I'm thinking about times where I've interviewed maybe like men in their 40s and 50s, I've found that can be more awkward. <laughs> so it can be like, uh, they don't, maybe they don't feel comfortable telling me about sex that they've had. I remember with one guy in particular, I was, I was really pushing him because what I really wanted to do in my interviews wasn't just to say, you know, what do you think about sex and drugs? Like, which one's good, which one's bad? I wanted them to tell me about times when they'd had sex on drugs and what it had been like, so specific times and in quite a lot of detail. So, but he was just talking very generally. He, you know, he just came, oh, I like MDMA with sex. It's pretty good, yeah. And I'd be like, oh, tell me about a time you had sex on MDMA. And he just he just wouldn't. Like, he kept, he kept avoiding it. And in the end, the interview... Um, like, it didn't generate the kind of data that I was looking for. But then it was quite interesting because I could just reflect on maybe why he didn't open up to me and stuff like that. So, so um, but I think, yeah, that's an important... It's, it's always important when you're doing research is to think about how you as a researcher are influencing, like, what people are willing to say to you and what they're not willing to say to you. So, you know, maybe, like, a, a male researcher would have had more success there. I found it's not at all a similar situation, but I... <laughs> When I was working as a research assistant in Bristol and one of the many random jobs that had nothing to do with what I do now, yeah. <laughs> I was running a study which was looking at um, galvanic skin response, so as a measure of kind of arousal and ah. swearing. And I was asking um, participants to say the worst swear words, either when they couldn't hear themselves, they were listening to white noise in headphones, or when I was listening to white noise in headphones, or when no one was listening to white noise in headphones. And some, some, it was, it was always male participants just didn't want to say the C word in front of me, mm. just, just, just really didn't want to. Yeah. Um, and one of them even asked me what word I meant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> very innocent but um but so even even that was a, was a struggle let yeah. alone the kind of intimate conversations yeah. that you were and sort of personal details as well yeah and I, and on on that topic because because something I would talk about a lot was consent like I'd be, you know how does consent work when you're having sex on drugs like is it different is it the same um I found that one guy in particular, I remember him being like quite defensive almost, as if I was accusing him, I felt. And, and you know, like, I always check if they've consented, always, I always check. Like, I, like I wasn't, obviously, I, I'm not saying I don't believe him, I was trying to check, but it, it just felt like, you know, his, his eagerness to come across as someone who respected women and respected their consent almost like hindered the interview process because that, that was his main concern, if you know what I mean. So I guess probably what we're all sitting here wanting to know is what, what are you finding out? What's your research revealing about women and sex and drugs? Um, or, oh, not just women, actually. <laughs> what's, your, what's your research finding out? It's, so I guess it's, it's finding out that people use, sex, use drugs with sex in very cool ways. 
<laughs> so and like like intention like a lot of you know intentional use of uh, drugs with sex you know and specific drugs to get particular effects um like we talked about g before g is is kind of anecdotally really good with sex people say you know it's like a sex drug it's perfect you know your inhibitions are lowered everything feels great um like everything is like 10 times more pleasurable so um it's cool to it's cool to hear about the positive aspects of sex and drugs because i guess what we most often think of when we hear about sex and drugs is impairment your your capacity to give consent is impaired your um, capacity to communicate with your partner is impaired but actually like what i found is is a lot of it is about enhancement so you know enhancing pleasure enhancing communication even so you know conversations that might be difficult or awkward to have about sex say if you and someone you're going about to have sex with are on MDMA for example you know your ability to open up is is enhanced and you might talk about things you'd feel awkward about otherwise um maybe just as an example to kind of illustrate uh there was one person who I interviewed who said that they and their partner um had both taken MDMA together they hadn't gone out they were just like sitting in their house just listening to music and chatting and uh uh it was a, a man and a woman and they'd never they'd never had sex where she had a strap on and had sex with him but um while they were on MDMA they started talking about it and they talked about it for hours you know in like extreme level of detail you know he didn't wasn't sure if he felt comfortable with it but they started talking about how he didn't feel comfortable with it and you know when i interviewed them they were saying like we wouldn't have had that conversation had it not been for MDMA and they didn't even go on to do it in that on that particular day but they did a few weeks later so it's like just thinking about the positives of drugs with sex. So I think that's kind of the the most important thing that's come out of it so far is just trying to like not challenge that impairment narrative because obviously it's important as well. Like I'm not saying that there aren't bad situations people get into with sex and drugs. I'm I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but just kind of expanding the conversation like trying to create a bit more of a fuller picture about how people are actually having sex with drugs. I think we're looking at drug research more broadly as well. I mean, not surprisingly it focuses on public health kind of and individual health harms far more often than potential benefits or the, the sort of the reasons why people enjoy taking drugs tend to be far less well researched mm-hmm. yeah and i think i think it kind of as well comes back to the idea that taking drugs for pleasure is something that is to be judged negatively unless it's alcohol yes yeah. <laughs> then it, then it's fine but yeah if you if you if you're taking drugs to have sex and enjoy it like you know it's not it's not real enjoyment you've just taken a drug and enjoyed it like you know it would be better if you kind of found pleasure in in sober things because then it would be you know real and proper and earned pleasure if that makes sense. I I'm just thinking because I was listening to your podcast on cognitive enhancers and good plug. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea that you know work that you're producing on these various cognitive enhancing drugs like 
you know, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have got there without them. You know, it's you've you've cheated your way there almost. And I think yeah, it's the same with drugs and pleasure. It's like a a shortcut to pleasure, cheated cheating to get pleasure. So I think that can be the reason why we focus on the negatives. One one of the reasons, at least, why we focus on the negatives. But when we were talking before we came up here, you sent or before we even met up, you sent me mm. some sort of notes. And one of the things that I found really interesting was the idea of people using drugs to facilitate sex to to get themselves into the right place mm. where they wanted to and were able to have have sex or have more enjoyable sex. Yeah. Yeah, and um, the the drug that I kind of found that was the case for a lot of the time was was cannabis. So and and particularly the case for my female participants as well. So on the topic of women and drugs. So for example, just to kind of give a story to illustrate, one one of the women I interviewed said that she was having like quite bad like body image issues. Like she was feeling, you know, feeling feeling unhappy with her body and it was it was making sex difficult for her to have because she'd just be thinking all the time, oh do I look fat? Like, you know, what's my partner gonna think of me? Like and just taking you out of the moment basically. Um, and she said that she was really happy because she realised that if she smoked weed and had sex, like those things weren't bothering her anymore. She could just really be in the moment without those kind of intrusive thoughts about her body bothering her anymore, which I thought had really interesting parallels with like Viagra for men. Because obviously there's no female equivalent for Viagra, um, no drug to treat female sexual dysfunction, like whatever female sexual dysfunction is. There's no kind of agreed thing of what that even is. But, you know, she was using it in a way that reminded me of how people might use Viagra. But um, as well, like, that was definitely a positive thing for her and she was really pleased about it. But it definitely wasn't wholly positive as well because I think um, she kind of was worried that it was almost becoming kind of like a crutch and then maybe she couldn't then have sex without the drug. And I think that also really resonates with uh, what people say about chemsex as well because it's like, oh, you know, you become so used to sex on drugs that having sober sex, and again, whatever sober sex is, um, isn't good for you anymore. You don't feel as confident about your body and, you know, how do you go back once you've had this amazing sex on drugs? How do you go back to normal sex and that kind of thing, so... As if there's such a thing as normal sex. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But maybe we should talk about sex for a little bit um, because I think lots of people probably have very heteronormative... um, I was going to say root one, which is not really what I meant. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, a very sort of... um, straight idea of what sex is but mm. probably I mean is that what is that what you're finding when people are talking about drug facility or drug say facilitated sex but <laughs> sex on drugs let's just stick to the straightforward terms yeah. um what in terms of does it change the type of sex that people have or does is it related to the type of sex that people have or who they have sex with or any, anything like that well I think what what that question brings to mind is kind of when people are choosing which drugs they want to have sex on, they're likely to choose a drug that lends itself well to the kind of sex they want to have. So, for example, um, one guy who was more of a dom, he found that cocaine really, like, lent itself well to the, the kind of mindset he wanted to be in when he was in that situation. Another friend... Um, so this is not someone 
who's involved in my research, but just a relevant story, not anyway, um, says that she'll use G when she wants to be, you know, kind of just lying down and cosy kind of sex. But if she's taken G, then she can't, like, take on the more dominant role. So, again, like, stimulants lend themselves better to that. Um, whereas more kind of relaxing ones, maybe cannabis, maybe G, um, lend themselves better to if you, you want to take the more submissive role or if you want to have, you know, different kind of sex. So so I would say yes, like, they, they definitely change the kinds of sex people are having, but that can often be quite intentional. So people are deciding to do it. So I don't, I don't want to say... Basically, what I'm trying to avoid is saying that a certain drug will affect sex in a certain way because there's so many factors that go into it, you know, who you're having sex with, what kind of mindset you're in, the environment you're in. You know, that, that's why I'm, I'm trying to do this research with attention to environments and other people who are around and not, not just thinking, you know, X drug has X effect on sex, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now, thinking about GHB is a drug that has been implicated in mm. sexual assaults mm-hmm. and... When I was researching for my book, I spoke to some people who had found themselves in very vulnerable situations and knew of friends who'd, had, mm. who'd, had, who'd been assaulted while mm. on GHB because it, the intoxication effect can be very sort of um, making you unable to move yeah. or unable to sort of speak sometimes yeah. and kind of protect or look after yourself. Yeah. So is that something that you're interested in as well sort of in in the whole of your research yeah so I mean I think I think it's important to talk about GH, GHB at the moment just because yeah like like what you said it's you know there was that recent uh guy who was convicted in Manchester of committing like over 150 sexual assaults or something like that and GHB was like he used GHB to incapacitate his victims, basically. So, so yeah. Um, and it is known as like a date rape drug as well. Like it's referred to as that. And sexual assaults on women and men as well. I yeah, think it's probably worth. Yeah, pointing. and as well, like kind of because of G's reputation, like nightclubs are starting to be really hot on banning it as well. So some will kind of, you know, as you're walking in, they'll say, you know, if you're caught with GHB, you will be banned for life. Like, you will be completely banned. And it's interesting because it is often um, clubs who have kind of... who do other kind of cool harm reduction stuff in terms of drugs, you know, the opposite of prohibition kind of things. You know, they'll have, they'll have like, straws for people to take, uh, you know, to snort things with. They'll um, give out information about dosing related to MDMA, you know, take a quarter of a pill rather than a whole one, that kind of thing. But when it comes to GHB, they're like, no, like, you can't have that in this club, you'll be banned. So, you know, within people who use drugs, there's, like, additional stigma connected to G. You know, there'll be a lot of people who be like, use a lot of drugs, but, oh, I won't touch G, I'll never do G, and judge people harshly who do use it, which, you know, has... has has effects, you know, people... It, it doesn't have the effect that people stop taking GHB. That's the one thing it doesn't do. But they continue to do it, but, you know, feel ashamed or embarrassed, or if they do overdose on it, they feel like they can't ask for help because, you know, maybe they'll be banned for life, maybe they'll get in trouble. So don't want to talk about it with their friends because they feel like they might get judged, that kind of thing. So, yeah, G's a, G's a really interesting drug at the moment for that. But as I, I don't want to be critical of people being wary of G because, you know, we should be wary of it. And 
because it is really easy to to dose incorrectly and you know yeah you can't you you can get into bad situations like with all drugs but you know obviously when you're having to dose in terms of point one of a milliliter it's it's a bit different to maybe you know snorting a bit more of a drug than you wanted yeah. to that and it's kind a of drug thing. that affects your memory so remembering how long mm -hmm. ago you last took it as well yeah i think people report and people who use it regularly do report more often than they would like taking so much that they end up unconscious. Which, yeah. I mean, in a way, that's not a million miles away from alcohol. Yeah, 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 yeah. And alcohol, we know exactly what the dose that we're taking whenever we take it because yeah. it's all very regulated and yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, so, you know, instead of instead of banning it, like, may, maybe a better response would be to, to kind of encourage the kind of harm reduction things that people are already doing in relation to DG, which is... Um, firstly, you know, dosing it with a syringe, like you mentioned, that's a really good way to do it. Um, another thing is like setting a timer on your phone, say like it's, you know, for an hour and a half or two hours or, you know, whatever, before you want to do it again. Um, another thing that I've heard of people doing is um, dosing it into gelatin capsules because, because it melts uh, lots of plastic, but it doesn't melt gelatin. So they'll pre-dose it, so they'll have measured it out at home um, into these capsules, and then they'll take those into the clubs, and they can kind of take one of those every so often. People are still taking G, so so a kind of, a good thing to harm do. Reduction yeah. Is good. Yeah. yeah, harm reduction is good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and those are specific ones that I've kind of come across in relation to G. People are yeah, people are smart in the way they take it, and obviously there are there are people as well who who do take too much. Not saying that isn't true, but to look to the ones who are doing it in ways that are making it safer. So we've talked a little bit about methadrone, but is there oh, yeah. anything that you're finding in your research about novel psychoactive substances in terms of like the synthetic cathinones like methadrone, uh, meow meow, or, um, <laughs> or the synthetic cannabinoids and things like spice? I've not come, come across anyone who's, who's taken spice. And again, like you could maybe kind of make similar links to G. Like I think people do tend to look down on... on on those kinds of drugs and and you know often the reason people look down on certain drugs is because of the groups who are using it so you know that might be linked to the kind of people who are using spice maybe if it's associated with people who are maybe homeless or people who are using it in prison people don't want to associate themselves with that kind of drug maybe the case so yeah I've not come across anyone using that um yeah and while I have come across people using methadrone I've not come across it that frequently, not as frequently as, as other drugs anyway. Yeah. So are you finding that the patterns of drug use that you're seeing, I guess with qualitative work, it's hard mm. to say to look at patterns because obviously it's very small numbers yeah. of people going very in depth in very few people rather than looking at population level patterns. Yeah. But do you think that it's just that people are, people are using drugs when they're having sex and the, the drugs that they're using are the ones that are kind of around at that time that have the yeah. effects that they want rather than it being seeking out a specific yeah. drug. Yeah, I think times where, you know, people are... So I think a lot of the time the drugs that are combined with sex are just the drugs you were taking on a night out. So, you know, you've taken MDMA and then you've come home and have had sex. And then that bit of, like, kind of intentional use of drugs with sex happens maybe more after parties or you know post clubbing time when you maybe it's the two of you you're in your room together maybe you've got some g and you're like oh that would be really nice now let's both have it that kind of thing so yeah i mean i mean i wouldn't like i 
like if, if people are going on nights out, I think, you know, they, they tend to choose the kind of drug that they like best for dancing and that kind of thing. And if they go on to have sex with it, they, then they do. But, you know, so, so often the drugs that people are having sex with just reflect the kind of drugs they like taking, you know, because they're just used to that drug. So before we wrap up, I just want to ask you a little bit about um, what, what do you want to happen with your research? Like, what's, what do you want people to take away from it and where do you want it to go next? So I guess kind of that thing about broadening the conversation away from just risk and harm and impairment to, like, pleasure and functions and enhancement as well, to just, you know, paint more of, more of a full story of sex and drugs. And I would say as well, adding women and other gender minority groups, like, to the conversation about sex and drugs in a way that doesn't just paint them as victims, in a way that's not just, like, you know, they're being drugged and assaulted and it's terrible and we need to stop that. I'm not saying that that isn't terrible. <laughs> that is terrible. But, you know, they, they do have sex on drugs in, you know, intentional, cool, interesting ways that would be great to learn about. And I think as well widening the conversation about drugs and consent because a lot of a lot of information that we see is you know if you're drunk you can't consent like it's rape like if someone is into clearly intoxicated leave them alone you know they're, they're vulnerable don't have sex with them but people just are having sex on drugs so it's it, that's not enough advice like yeah sure if someone if someone's you know incapacitated of course don't have sex with them but you know what about when we're in that gray area when you know it's it's between intoxication and incapacitation someone's still able to talk and they're still kind of making decisions and stuff like that would you know that I don't, we don't want to, like, just say people can't be making these decisions because people are making those decisions. And, you know, things I said before about um, kind of drugs having the capacity to maybe enhance conversations around consent and stuff like that, just, keep, just keeping that in mind and just not looking solely to impairment when we think about drugs and consent, I think that's an important thing as well. Fabulous. Well, can you all join me in thanking Alex very, very much for her time? <laughs> And there we are. I just want to say thank you so much to Alex for being my interviewee for that. I thought it was really great. I also want to say sorry to all the people who were in the room who asked brilliant questions, but unfortunately the um, audio recording that I had just wasn't quite good enough to be able to put those questions out because obviously the audience wasn't mic'd up. Thank you to everyone who listened. Um, thank you to Vault Festival and particular thanks to Amy Taylor at child.org for inviting me to be a part of it. It was literally the last thing I did before going into lockdown, the last time I came to London. So it's a, it's a very happy, happy memory of times when we used to be able to do things. So thank you to her and thank you to Child.org and Vault Festival. Thanks to Alex. Um, thank you everyone for listening. Thanks to Adam Richardson for being amazing and doing all of my artwork quite often at short notice when I'm like, oh, I should really put out an episode. Um, he'll make something up for me. He's brilliant. You should listen to Pod Bible Podcast, which Adam Richardson does with Stu Whiffen on the, also on the Distraction Pieces Network, which is a very meta podcast about podcasts. Really, really interesting if you're looking for new podcasts to listen to, since there's going to be a bit of a break on this one. But I do hope that you'll remain subscribed and Say Why to Drugs will be back once I have um, learnt how to deal with a screaming milk-obsessed banshee at three in the morning, which is currently what my, what my life is like. Thanks for listening. If you made it this far, 
I'm so sorry about what how much I'm rambling right now. But yeah, quite tired. Much love to you all. See you on the other side. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.